0: Welcome to Leading Women, your place to share and celebrate real stories and access the tools and resources you need to activate your leadership. I'm Ginny Olney, Head of Combank's Women in Focus, and Leading Women is just one of the ways we support women at all stages of their business journey. So, no matter where you are on your journey, we're here. Enjoy this episode as we redefine the business landscape together.
1: Welcome to Leading Women, the place to ignite your leadership and elevate equality. I'm your host, Shadeh and today's conversation is not only topical, but it's also a vital one for us to have. What a privilege to welcome our guest, a remarkable woman who has elevated our awareness across the arts and environment to offer us all the opportunity to contribute. Anna Marsden, Managing Director of the Great Barrier Reef Foundation, shares her impactful career with the full purpose sector. We dive into navigating lightning strike moments in leadership, quietening our inner critic and embracing dual psychology to thrive. Thanks so much for joining us from Queensland on Leading Women, Anna.
2: Hi, how are you going? <laughs> really,
1: really well. Can't wait to dive right in and hear all about your
2: story. So Anna, can Oh, no, and diving is appropriate. <laughs> Sorry. You've got to do the diving joke. When you talk to someone from the reef. <laughs> <laughs> so Anna, can you
1: share with us and help us dive into the story of your incredible leadership journey?
2: Look, absolutely. And I should say at the start... I just like I still can't believe that I'm in this forum with you know women in leadership because I still feel like the leadership journey never never starts and never ends. It's this it's this thing. But oh gosh, you look back on a career and you start to identify points. I have had a remarkable time, but I started off very much in my first loves always been the arts. Um, when I was leaving high school, the dream was to be on the stage, and my father, who was a bank manager. I think in the end what he basically said was just because you have the you know that you think you've got the talent don't confuse that with just confidence to get up on a stage and but he did point out that I was very bossy so I chose to look at arts management which was about that time in Australia in the sort of early 90s it was still an emergence of not I don't mean that there weren't professional people working in the cultural sector but it wasn't really seen it was seen as a sector not an industry so there wasn't a the business acumen that you see now in running these large cultural institutions so I started off doing that thinking I would run a theatre company found myself post university working in art galleries for about 14 years. And that was remarkable, took me around the world and really unlocked a passion for connecting great brands and great work and great people with the public, but also fundraising, asking for money, seeking investment, enabling these people to be brilliant. So I did 14 great years in the visual arts, then worked a little stint in corporate um, communications and consultancy, which I think everybody in this world does a little moment in consultancy. It wasn't it wasn't the best skin for me, but it was still amazingly valuable from a skills um, training exercise. And then I found myself being the CEO of the Queensland Ballet. I did that for seven years. And now I'm the managing director of the Great Barrier Reef Foundation at the time when the world is watching what we do to save this irreplaceable treasure.
1: And I love how you started and said that leadership, it really doesn't have a start and an end. It's an ongoing journey. And you've had a remarkable journey through leadership, Uh, you know, starting early when your father identified a core quality that you had. I mean, he called it bossy, but we call it being assertive and (laughs) having those leadership strengths within you. So, Anna, many of the women that we're interviewing are thriving in male-dominated industries and environments, but that's not the case for you. Not that you're not thriving, but you're actually thriving in the generally women-majority areas of the for-purpose sector, the arts, and now environmental awareness and protection. How have you seen
2: women activating leadership in these spaces? Well, you're absolutely right. I think, I mean, and I'm not to say that I haven't had significant male role models and leaders, and I will say that even in the, in the environmental, the NGO space, there are women everywhere and, and the activation is powerful. I will still say at the very, very top table, I sit in a lot of rooms as the only woman, um, and that's something that you know you don't you don't you don't focus on it too much but you are aware of it so that's something we have to change we have to elevate up i can't help but say that you can't disentangle your experience at home and your experience as a woman and as a mother than you can as your leadership journey. And there is no doubt that, I mean, my oldest daughter turned eight yesterday. So there's no doubt for me, my leadership journey and being a mom and the awareness of that interplays with the ahas I've had about how to nurture and cultivate an environment that, frankly, I think is just a no-brainer. How do you truly enable people to be great? And along that way, I mean, crunch to the end, there is no more productive, empathetic, powerful, purposeful creature on this planet than a working mother. And I I don't have the psychology or the data, but I will fight anybody on that fact. But I think what's really interesting, there's two moments that I think are quite tentpole moments for me. One was probably about 15 years ago, I was in a a women's lunch and there were amazing guest speakers who really were the the heroes and, and broke so many glass ceilings in Australia but they said something in that lunch, which was, women, once you start, once you have a child, you pretty much stop climbing the ladder. You stop progressing up, and it's so interesting. Fifteen years ago, how I received that information was, well, I better get climbing, you know, because I'm going to have kids soon. So that's how I took it. It spurred me on to just focus on climbing the ladder, rather than, you know, before I even think about, thought about children. And that phrasing or that headspace or fact came back to me when I had my first child sort of eight years on, where I went, why? What a crazy idea that you stop growing, developing once you've got the kids, once you have to get up in the middle of the day because you get a call from school that someone's throwing up, all of that kind of thing. That coupled with the fact that I've only ever been a mother while being a CEO. And there is an extreme privilege that comes with that because I don't have to get up and declare to anybody, oh, I've had a call from school. Can I please leave? Or my kid is sick. Can I please work from home? I just send an email saying, I'm working from home. And that is a privilege that I take for granted. And there's a lot of people in organizations that don't have that. Even, you know, I like to think that now for so many years, I've been really striving to walk the walk and talk the talk about work-life balance and the fact that in the end you work the hours that work for you and you do the work and you be present when you can but sometimes home calls you know different different duties you know require you to be there but even two weeks ago one of my two ICs who's got a two-year-old she phoned me up in the holidays just to check that as she was rejuggling the days that her nanny was going to work is it okay that she could move her day off from Wednesday to Thursday and of course I went Of course, why are you ringing me? And she went, just had to check it. So, even though I I like to think that we're cultivating this, the thing that I can't change is that little voice that you cannot quieten to go, am I getting an A at home, and am I getting an A in here? Is it okay? Are people saying she's not doing enough? So, I think that's that is still going to be the challenge. And I say to the women who are listening you've got to quieten that voice because no one, everyone else is doing their job. They're not thinking about that. And of course, this voice that we have in our heads, it really is a tendency for all women from young women across all life stages. Oh, absolutely. I can't remember ever not having the voice in my head. I think it's women's leadership guilt and she gets stronger and louder at certain times. And you certainly have to find a way to make peace with this friend in your in your head. But she, she is there. And I think Unfortunately, she can hold you back at critical times, um, but it is guilt. There's no other word for it. She, she puts herself down and she makes you think that you're not good enough and we all carry it. I think mothers carry it differently to carers to, and you hear it differently as, as young women as you do to women in later life stages. It's just something that us as female animals have got to make peace with and somehow we, we've got to fall in love with it and, and use it. Anna, you're a
1: changemaker in the for-purpose sector, also known as not-for-profit, but never before have the words for-purpose been so meaningful in the context of our business and our professional world. Can you tell us a little bit more around your insights into people generally being
2: more aware and focused on their purpose? Well, I, I absolutely think 2020 was the, the shake-up year. You know, particularly in Australia, we started the year with bushfires, we crept into covid you know, the world didn't stop. The challenges didn't stop. But people did have a disruption. They, were, they had to confront the fragility of life. They had to confront that as animals, we want to embrace connection and community and, and this social distance. You know, I still don't think we are completely aware of how much this being constantly told distance, distance, distance into our head goes against our psyche. And, and there's, there's an isolation piece that comes out of that. What it has done is make people realize, I have one life. I have one community, how do I be be purposeful, make it count? We certainly saw this with the kinds of feedback and and dialogue we got from the general public to the plight of the reef next year as people were able to quieten and consider different things. You know, all of our social media um, followers just increased. We got donations from around the world. People were having a reckoning and a, a resettlement. And I also saw a lot of people who either were stood down or given the opportunity to shift their their work style to actually think, is this what I want to keep doing? So I I do think we're in a little bit of a transition where people are trying to find a more purposeful life and a more purposeful vocation. And not everybody gets to work in a a Great Barrier Reef Foundation. Not everybody actually gets to work right in the coalface of purpose work. That doesn't mean you can't have a purposeful life. What I love about being purpose-driven is that you do need to understand the why and you have to listen to both your head and heart, and I also really believe you've got to have a thin skin. There are many ways that you as a person, as an individual, as a worker, can lean in and be part of the solution and be able to look at your children and have them look at you when you're 90 and be able to say, I did my part. And I think that's what we're all working out at the moment. And it's it's beautiful because the world, the planet, she needs us. She needs us to be good citizens. And that's just not a phrase. She needs us to lean into this and quite simply be a little bit better.
1: Now, Anna, you talk of lightning strike moments in leadership, which we all at Leading Women love. Can you share the story of the succession of your lightning strike moments and the gratitude that you had for them? And of course, how you managed that challenge that totally
2: blindsided you in 2018. Absolutely. And look, I should say I stole the lightning strike concept from Adina Menzel when someone talked to her about what's it like being Elsa. And she went, well, I've had two lightning strike moments in my career with with the Wicked and then Elsa. And I went, oh, yeah, well, you do. You find yourself in a place where it just clicks and you happen to be sitting there at the, the time and you can't help but go. Someone else could be in this chair, but it happened to me, so step up and be it. I, look, I've had three moments of, of extreme, I won't say luck anymore, I would say gratitude and just opportunity um, because I do, as I get older, you start to realise, you know, luck just feels a bit too random and and I think I think that's appropriate. So the first one was when my second post in the visual arts, I was working at the Queensland Art Gallery. I was quite a young member of the leadership team, but collectively we helped um, achieve a second site being the gallery of modern art and as a young I was in my 20s it was just a remarkable moment of the cultural awakening of Brisbane which is my hometown and to be in the middle of that doing the fundraising the sponsorship the events and all of that it was just it was just, it was a dream it was a pinch me moment it also was a moment where I just all I did was work and so you look back on it and realize that Yeah, there was not a lot of work life balance back then, but that was what the 20s were for. My second lightning strike moment was at the Queensland Ballet, which again, and not to take anything away from this remarkable organization and the heritage of it, when I walked into there as the CEO, it was an undiscovered treasure. It was playing to decreasing audiences. It certainly wasn't rated as one of the, the cultural moments of Queensland. And I was fortunate to be there for its sort of awakening and, and renaissance. And part of that was bringing on board um, Lee Shuan Singh, Mao's last dancer, as the artistic director. So that was, again, just a remarkable moment that you hold on to your seats. But I will say the leadership aha about that post was that was the first time I discovered the loneliness of being a CEO you know where you really are holding the map holding the plan and everyone's sort of blindly following you and you do feel such a large responsibility and accountability to to hope that you've got it right when you do a significant change or restructure to an organization Um, but all of those dwarf from what happened with the Great Barrier Reef Foundation and even within that this job I'm in right now, I've had two lightning strike moments. The first was three months into my job, and I will confess that I started this job right at the birth of my second child, thinking I hopefully will be able to manage this job a couple of days a week. It was supposed to be my my great work life balance dream. Three months into this job, the first mass coral bleaching event took shape on coral reefs around the world, followed by a second mass coral bleaching event. And to put that in context, in an eighteen month period. Australia, the world lost half the coral on the Great Barrier Reef, an ecosystem the size of Italy. We lost half of it. And that community of scientists and traditional owners and managers and government policy advisors looked around and went, Who's the, where's the heart, where's the face, where's the charity? And he was this gorgeous little charity working along as a quiet achiever for 20 years, sitting there ready to be discovered and to step in and play its role. So that was an amazing lightning strike moment where we basically went, Game on. We're not worthy of the name if we don't lean into this and be the front door of where people can come and get not just the facts but the hope and, again, enable people to do great work. And then, I guess, because of the work that we did, because of the high relationships and partnerships that we built and our independence and our can-do attitude in May 18, the Australian government decided to grant us half a billion dollars and the process perhaps was a little bit unique And it's triggered, I would say, an extreme level of curiosity, many people, plus politics, Canberra, which I've never really been part of. Whoa, that's quite a thing when you're thrust in the middle of it. And the the curiosity, which I continue to call it, turned into a reef gate um, hashtag crisis that I lived with for eight weeks. It spawned two ANA inquiries, a Senate inquiry, um, our peak, we were fielding probably 80 unique media inquiries a day. It was just intense. And because, and this is really important for not-for-profits, because we were a quiet achiever, because in some ways we proudly didn't spend money on communications. We spent it on the reef, on the projects, on our cause, being practical we were a bit unknown. And so for those who didn't know us but had heard about us for the first time, couldn't help but, and I have to say, they they thought they could smell a rat. What's going on here? What's this deal? When we were just a really great, quiet achiever and what the government was hoping to achieve, which was disruption, innovation, collective impact, that was our DNA and that's what we had been doing quietly for 20 years. So... The challenge for us was it made perfect sense. Perhaps not the quantum was certainly surprising, but it made perfect sense for us to be tasked with this amazing endeavor. Our team absolutely felt we could be brilliant. We could earn, you know, the right and, and be a great guardian of this grant, and we could perhaps change forever the outlook of the Great Barrier Reef. But the media, the crisis, the the, the Twitterverse, it was it was paralyzing, and it got personal. People treated pictures of a, a Premier holding a picture of my baby at an art gallery opening and drawing. Conclude It was just insane. And for a team who we had cultivated to have a thin skin, they felt every barb. We had staff sitting at computers just sobbing because they were stumbling upon things at Twitter. I found out a few months later that one woman had chosen to pull her child from his rugby games because all the mothers wouldn't stand with her, because they thought that she was corrupt in some way. It was just brutal, and for me to lead that was really tough. And I mean, I I, I try not to remember all of it, but I remember a critical moment probably on day three when it was at its peak of the media inquiries, um, sitting in my car in the car park, and I'd never had a panic attack, but I think this is what it looks like just paralyzed, not being able to get out of the car and just crying. And I phoned my husband to go, I don't think I can go in. I just I'm at a loss. I don't know what I can do. And I I probably part of me had hoped for like the Hollywood response or probably what I hope Kamala Harris's husband said to her to pep her up and make her walk in and then I'd walk into an office full of flowers. But instead he said what I probably needed to hear, which was, mate, put your big girl pants on and go in there and do your job. And so I did, and you'll see that that was the day that I was on the 7.30 report and the project, and we went, no, you're telling a story, you're telling our story, we're going to tell our story. And we understand the curiosity and we're very happy to be transparent and to answer every question, but you will not say these things about us because we are good people. And the bottom line is, is the reef needs this money. We lost half the reef. She needs the support. And if this is the way the money's going to come to her, let us get on with this job. And the gift of that moment was that gave me my north star. It gave me my truth, which is that whenever I'm struggling, I have a little quiet moment and go, "What does the reef need us to do? What does she need me to do?" And I follow that. And I have to say, I haven't made a, I hope, an error of judgment because she is our only customer. It's it. We work for her. What an amazing story. I mean, going back to the beginning of
1: your career, those lightning strike moments that culminated in that crisis that gained so much media attention to that moment when you're sitting in the car park, you call (laughs) your husband, expecting him to say something and you get something completely different, but it's almost what you needed to hear at that moment. And what I think is so powerful is that actually in all of these examples, it was very much a conscious choice that you made. There was a certain point in time where you said, okay, game on, we are going to do this. And so initially you shared that you just happened to be in the right place at the right time. But there's definitely some element of you consciously deciding, this is it, we're going to lean in. And when it comes to crisis situations, I think there's so much that can be said about women making that conscious decision that I am here for it, I can do this. Whether it means reaching out to someone for support, a mentor, a loved one, but just backing yourself. And you also highlighted that, Your purpose is to ask, what does the reef need me to do? So you're actually acting not just for yourself, not just for your team, but actually on behalf of this voiceless reef that needs you. And we also know when it comes to women, women are generally more confident and more assertive when they're acting on behalf of someone else, whether it's other women, whether it's their team or whether it's their future self or their younger self to be a role model. So I love that that came out as such a strong theme here, Anna. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. (laughs) Now, Anna, as you know, at Leading Women, we are committed to activating women's leadership. And our unique impact is that each amazing guest offers a tangible tool that has ignited their leadership so that we can add that into our leadership toolbox to really elevate equality. What are you going to be adding for us today?
2: Okay, so I'm going to add a piece of psychology, dual psychology, that a woman shared with me quite a few years ago, which up until 2020, I used to help me be me and be positive and optimistic while I stand in front of a frontline ecosystem to a changing climate. Because I think it's one of the most common comments that I get is, how can you be this positive? Isn't the world ending? So this has been a great mindset, but increasingly this, this concept, this psychology, has been picked up and applied to COVID and how business leaders um, and leaders even in the community can handle the brutality of life at times and still remain resilient, optimistic, powerful and prevail. And so the the concept or the the idea is called the out Paradox and quite simply, and it was made famous, it was coined in a a book that Jim Collins wrote, Good to Great, I've even got it here as my little reference thing, which is a a great book, Stanford book. Um, And he understood in America, this Admiral Jim Collins is quite a famous figure. He was the most senior member of the military ever to be in a Vietnam POW camp and daily tortured. And because of his seniority was really used as an example to try to bring down the American government and all of that kind of thing and, and win some battles. Anyway, He managed to survive that and actually go on to be this remarkable leader and and, and member of the community. And when Jim Collins was, he's always wanted to understand this man, so he interviewed him and asked him what is the, the secret of his success. And he had this great phrasing about the fact that while he could accept the raw brutality and the reality of the circumstance he was in, He still never lost determination that he would prevail. He would survive and he would get home. And when Jim was interviewing, he said, and who didn't make it? And so what the admiral said was the optimists, because they kept on saying, we'll be out of Easter and then not. We'll be out of Christmas and not. And so for them, it basically just wore down their spirits. The optimists didn't survive. You've got to assume a dual psychology to be able to never lose faith in the end of the story, to have that faith, but to confront the reality. And that has been something that's been really powerful for me. I place it in the Great Barrier Reef circumstance right now and the work that we do. The scientists who inform us, we know the modelling is 30 years to live. That's as blunt as it is, 30 years to live. Not just the Great Barrier Reef, coral reefs on this planet, which when you play that out, that's not just a loss of uh, a phenomenal destination on everyone's bucket list and an icon to Australia you know, that's home for fish, that's a food source, it's survival, That that is a hell of an ecosystem to fall. But what I say is, that's if you do nothing, that's if you go home and put a doona over your head. And who walks into a doctor's office and says, you've got 30 years to leave, but you can get a diet, stop smoking, do this, do this, and go home, no, I won't do any of that, I'll just sit still for 30 years and wait. And so this is it we will prevail because we will get the right combination of great brands from around the world to work this. And we will leave nothing in the tank. And so that's my drive is that team Australia will prevail. We will get there at the end, but I don't lose sight of the fact that we will have dark days at the moment. Every time they announce a new tropical cyclone in far North Queensland, and we're in the season right now, we think, great, sorry, Cairns, but that's cooling down the reef. It means we have a coral bleaching event. So this is the kind of world that we're in raw brutality. But you know what? We're going to get there and the saving of this Great Barrier Reef is going to be part of the Australian legacy and story moving forward.
1: So Anna, when you put it in a 30-year context, it really puts in place a timeline for your one and only customer, for her, the reef. What is the next horizon so that we don't just sit back for the next
2: 30 years? Well, the good news is we're not. We're absolutely not. And I think in the last two years what we've been able to do is assemble the best and the brightest of Team Australia approach and... All I can see down the runway in the next five years is great announcements. This is proving and this is good and we've got a cure here and this is making a difference. So there's good news coming. You know, put that up there. Extra, extra, good news coming. That doesn't mean we won't have dark days, but I think when we talk about collective impact, one of the big ahas and oversights of all of us is to truly understand the role and the, the necessity of this biocultural stewardship of the Great Barrier Reef and its protection, and that can only be done with deep, authentic relationships with First Nations people. There are 72 different traditional owner communities that have some guardianship and have had guardianship over the Great Barrier Reef in memoriam. They have been managing, protecting, loving, living with this ecosystem forever. And we've come in and, you know, over it and done all this sort of stuff. They are the solution and I'm so proud that through the investment from the Australian government we've been able to put a significant amount of money aside to realise the aspirations of First Nations people and that's being led by a remarkable team in the foundation, all women, our traditional owner protection team and just the work that's coming out of that, the deep thought, it gives me goosebumps and it, its I'm learning so much about it and I love to walk into those rooms and be able to be a kid again and say, tell me, am I doing this right? And we're all learning together. But I have to say, of everything that I've done in my life, and a few of the executives share this with me, this is the work that we think we'll be most proud of, is how we work together with First Nations communities to protect a, a special part of Australia. What a powerful message to end on.
1: Anna, thank you so much for such an insightful, energetic, passionate conversation full of your pivotal moments in your career, insights for women to apply directly in their careers around finding purpose and using challenge to really spur them on. I can't thank you enough for joining us.
2: This means a lot to me personally and any chance to tell the story of what Australians are doing to save this treasure, I'll always take it. So thank you.
1: What an impactful conversation. Especially the context of 30 years, not just for our reef, but all reefs on the planet. Mostly because this has to be resolved in our lifetime. It's not a pay it forward. Looking forward to you joining us next episode. Until then, share this episode with the women leaders you know, and let's activate leadership together.
0: Thanks for listening to Leading Women, where we can all activate leadership and redefine the business landscape. For now, it's over to you. Access the links, tips and tools discussed in this episode at womeninfocus.com.au. Subscribe to Leading Women so you don't miss an episode. Leave a review, spread the word and let's commit to keeping the conversation going at hashtag leadingwomenAUS.